after the service, you can tell me what your other two wishes were. Oh, I have to thank you for laughing. Last night, that did not go over at all. And of course, Saturday night, we're, it's the evening, so I literally heard crickets outside the windows, and I swear to you, a guy halfway up, maybe two-thirds of the way back, checks his watch. And I'm like, you'll all be checking your watch by the end, but uh, the first sentence, that's a little rough. But uh, I'm glad to be here. And I, I may have painted myself into a corner the last time I spoke with you guys, because I called my message the main thing. And tonight, uh, sorry, this morning, I've realized that I'm going to need to call my sermon the other main thing, because I didn't quite finish with you. So last time I shared with you, we focused on um, what Jesus referred to as the greatest commandment. Uh, to love God, the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And we looked at what that meant according to Jewish law, but more importantly, we looked at what it means for us today. Because I think if Jesus is telling us there is a greatest commandment, I think it's only proper that we want to become great at it. And as much as Jesus chose to simplify all of that Old Testament law, all 613 Old Testament commandments into this one greatest commandment, he didn't leave it at that. And so last time we used Mark 29 as our reference, I just want to revisit it real quickly. It says this in verse 29, Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And that's what we talked about last time, and if you missed it, you can catch up on kingsway.ca. You can hear sermons from, uh, I think, years ago, actually. But uh, although that's where we finished off, that's not where Jesus finished. He continued in the next verse, verse 31. It says, the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. And that second statement, love your neighbor as yourself, will be our focus uh, this morning. But in a way, he said this, there's a main thing, and then there's another main thing. It's kind of a strange response. It's like when a hockey coach says he has two starting goalies, one A and one B. But what does that actually mean, to love your neighbor as yourself? Because I think for many of us, we kind of just brush off statements like that. Maybe we need a reminder when we drive in in the morning. Or, or maybe we need it to be a little more personal. And so maybe what we need to do is kind of change it from loving our, loving our neighbor like ourselves to loving our neighbor like something else that we really, really love. Or maybe it's something like what Carl Sandburg once said. He said, love your neighbor as yourself, but don't take down your fence. But when Jesus gave his answer... The first part about loving God was a quote from Deuteronomy 6, and the second half was an answer of his answer, to love your neighbor as yourself, was also a quote from the Old Testament. It was from Leviticus 19. And now I'm going to say something that I've never said before. In fact, few have ever said in their entire lives, let's turn to the book of Leviticus. Because most of us, for most of us, we, we kind of skip that one, because Leviticus is a listing of the Old Testament law. And chapter 19 in its entirety, is a listing of this law. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 9, because this is where instructions for living with each other and getting along with each other begins. So Leviticus 9, starting in verse 19, it says, When you harvest your crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crops. Do not strip every last branch of grapes from the vines, and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not deceive or cheat one another. Do not bring shame on the name of your God by using it to swear falsely. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not make your hired workers wait until the next day to receive their pay. Do not insult the deaf or cause the blind to stumble. You must fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. 
always judge people fairly. Do not spread slanderous gossip among your people. Do not stand idly by when your neighbor's life is threatened. I am the Lord. And we'll pause there for a second because what Moses has just done for us is given us this list of shoulds and shouldn'ts. And I think for most of us, we would agree they're pretty straightforward. We probably don't need to look at them any more than we've just heard. And I think for most people, Christian or non-Christian, we would say these are just components of being a decent person, to not lie about people, to not trick people, to not uh, do underhanded things to the people around us. And what it does say is instead we should be generous, honest, caring, helpful. We should be the reason why they fail instead of the reason why they don't. And um, sorry, we should be the reason why they don't be the reason why they fail. (laughs) Don't be the reason why they fail. Instead, offer them hope so that they don't. And if I show you Leviticus, uh, everything that I just read on the left here, it's really quite straightforward. You don't have to reread that. You know, I know you can't read it from where you're sitting most likely, but that's just, it's very simple. And I think we can just leave those verses. But I think um, we need to continue on because there's two more verses where we need to hit here. And so what, it, what it, Moses continues in verse 17 is this. It says, do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin." Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, and here's the quote, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then in verse 19, it gets weird. So if you have kids sitting next to you, just close up Leviticus before they read ahead. Um, But we got what we need from it, and this is going to be our focus for the rest of our time together, what it means when it says, love your neighbor as yourself, because it's not a standalone verse. It's part of the two verses we just read. And I, I can ask you a question. Have you ever been picked on? You ever had somebody pick on you for, for no reason? Uh, well, I grew up with the last name Watson, so you know I heard my fair share of Sherlock Holmes jokes, um, which gives me the opportunity to share my favorite with you. So Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson are going camping, and they pitch their tent under the stars, and they go to sleep. And in the middle of the night, Holmes wakes Watson up, and he says, Watson, look up. Look at all those stars and tell me what you deduce. So Watson looks up, and he thinks to himself, you know what? I see millions of stars. And if even some of those stars have planets, and even some of those planets are like Earth, maybe there's life on other planets. And he said, you know what? What I deduce is that we are not alone in the universe. To which Holmes looks at him and says, no, Watson, you idiot. Our tent's been stolen. (laughs) So let me ask you this question then. Has there ever been a time when someone has done you wrong? Or if you're from Dunville, done did you wrong? Has there ever been a time when someone has lied to you or lied about you? Has there ever been a time where you were cheated or cheated on, misrepresented, someone's tried to harm your reputation or tried to destroy your reputation? Has someone ever, ever broken a trust in a relationship? Has there ever been a situation like that in your life? Because most of us can say yes, and in fact, some of us can say yes so quickly and so forcefully, it's like we didn't even have to think about the answer. And it also might be true that we don't fully realize that we might be holding a grudge because we haven't thought about it. And it reminds me of a story of a man who wrote a letter to his neighbor who had carried a grudge for a very long time. And he says this in his letter. He said, Dear Frank, we've been neighbors for six tumultuous years. When you borrowed my lawnmower, you returned it in pieces. When I was sick, you blasted loud music through my window. And your dog has used my lawn as his personal washroom every day, and you just laugh. I could go on but I'm certainly not one to hold a grudge. And to show you that I have no hard feelings and no resentment towards you, I'm also writing in this letter that your house is on fire. (laughs) I'm not sure how you sign that letter. Sincerely doesn't seem to work, does it? But uh, 
you know, if we wanted to, we could probably all come up here and share about a time where something has been done to us um, that wasn't fair. And, and we could also probably trace back that event and, and see how it's changed who we are, who the person we are right now is affected by those past events. But I, here's the thing I, I would argue, is that as much as that past event may have shaped us, our response to that past event has shaped us more. Because if we respond with unforgiveness, if we respond by holding a grudge with bitterness, that's going to shape us. And you know who the first to figure that out was? God figured that out. And before we're done here this morning, I think we're going to discover not just that God wants us to forgive others, but why he wants us to forgive others. But I don't think we're quite finished with those two verses in Leviticus. So if we go back to verse 17 again, do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. So how do you do that? How do you not nurse hatred in your heart or seek revenge or not hold a grudge? And the answer is forgiveness. Loving your neighbor as yourself involves all those things we looked at before about being honest and being fair, but it really focuses on this idea of forgiveness. And the reason why we need to forgive is, is, is much more for our benefit than it is for the person we're, we're forgiving. Because when we extend forgiveness to others, that grudge, that bitterness that we've been harboring begins to release its grip on us. Because forgiveness is powerful, and I would say forgiveness is aggressive. Forgiveness breaks the chains that bind us to our past hurts and allow us to move forward. And God wants that for each of us, to find the freedom that comes from forgiving others. You see, God's grace and forgiveness doesn't just come to you, it really kind of flows through you. Now, I know that sounds a little trite, kind of simplistic. It almost sounds like Luke and Yoda talking about the force. But I think we can bear that out when we see what Paul writes. And I think Paul gives us some instructions on how to go about doing this. So in Romans 12, the first half of verse 17 says this, never pay back evil with more evil. Now, I know this is going to sound weird, and there's a good chance Mark may edit this out of the, uh, the talk before it goes online. But my favorite part of this verse is how many times it uses the word evil. Because here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say never pay back unkindness with evil. It doesn't say never pay back rudeness with evil. Or never pay back a slight inconvenience with evil. It doesn't say never pay back what did he even mean by that with evil. And it doesn't say never pay back what did she say about me with evil. It doesn't say that, and I'm glad it doesn't. Because the number one thing I hear when I talk to people about forgiveness and letting go of bitterness and a grudge and I think you'd be shocked how often I have that conversation with high school-aged kids. But the number one thing I hear is, yeah, but you don't know what they did. And you're right, I don't. But neither did Paul when he wrote this. But it's important to understand that Paul is not simply saying, get over it, it wasn't a big deal. Instead, Paul is saying, listen, I know it's a big deal. What happened was terrible, but you can't repay that with more evil. Yeah, but they didn't even apologize, and they did it on purpose. Paul says, you're right. What they did was wrong. In fact, he says what they did was evil but you just can't repay it with more evil. There's actually a great story in the book of Genesis about someone who tried to repay evil with more evil and soon discovered that evil was beginning to conquer him. And so if you want to turn to Genesis 27, um, if you can't find Genesis in your Bible, just turn to the very beginning and then look in the table of contents and it'll tell you where it is. But here's, uh, here's where we find the story of two brothers, Esau the hairy and Jacob the supplanter. Um, we don't actually have pictures of them, but I'm pretty sure that's accurate. But because Esau, the word Esau means hairy. And so as a newborn, Esau must have been a hairy little guy. In fact, the NIV translation says he was born with a, 
when he was born, he was like a hairy garment. So he didn't have a fur coat. He was a fur coat. Now, these two boys were twins, and at the time when being, this was at a time when being the firstborn really meant something. And so Esau was the firstborn, but Jacob followed right behind him. And Scripture tells us that Jacob had a hold of Esau's heel as he was born. And this is why he's named Jacob. It means he who supplants. And the dictionary says that the definition of supplants is to supersede another, in this case his brother, especially by force or treachery. I mean, these Hebrews were very literal people. Back then, the father would usually name the boys, and the father would also not have been present when they were born. So a servant would have come out to Isaac and said to him, you have two sons. And he said uh, the second one was hanging on to the heel of the first as he was born. So Isaac would have thought about it for a minute, and he would have went in the tent, and he would have looked at his two sons, and he said, I will name this one Harry, or Esau, because of how hairy he is. He said, I will name this one Jacob, because he's sneaky. And so Isaac would have, uh, would have named them those two things. And then in, in chapter 25, we find out that Esau grew up to be a real man's man. And Jacob, well, he was a mama's boy. In fact, the Bible tells us that Esau loved three things, hunting, wild game, and being in the open country. It was basically camping. Jacob also loved three things, his mother, his mom, and his mama. And that's how they grew up. Esau was the firstborn. He was the manly firstborn who was well-loved by his father Isaac, and Jacob was the homebody who was well-loved by his mother Rebekah. And then we hear an interesting story that Esau comes home from a hunting trip and he's hungry, which isn't a good sign if you're coming home from a, a hunting trip and you're hungry. But he comes home and he says to Jacob, give me some of that stew you're cooking. Jacob asks for something in return. He says, Esau, I'll give it to you if you give me your birthright. So sell me your birthright for a bowl of stew. Now, if you're thinking that that doesn't sound like a legally binding contract, it's true, but it does show us something about how Esau feels about his um, birthright because he agrees. In fact, he swears it to his brother that he will give it to him. And then it says something very interesting in the very next verse. It says that Esau began to hate his birthright, which means that he began to hate his family, his whole family, not just his brother. So what does the name, sorry. um, So time goes by, Esau is um, grown up, And uh, about the age of 40, he gets married to a woman named Judith. Now, I think it's only fair I tell you what the name Judith means. So um, we look back into the the Hebrew, and we find out that Judith Judith means a woman from Judea. Let me get this straight. This is a a time and place when people name their kids after their personality or, or what their hopes and dreams are for that person. And Judith's parents took one look and said, well, she's a woman from Judea. Uh, that's all they had to say. Now, to be fair, um, maybe that was like their 10th daughter. Maybe their next daughter they named Uj Judith, which means another woman from Judea. I don't know. I, I do think about stuff like that, though. I don't, I don't know why. I spent hours on that. But the, the Bible tells us in Genesis 26 that Esau and Judith were a constant source of grief for Isaac and Rebekah. They, they seem to take joy in upsetting his parents. So in Genesis 27, we hear how a very old Isaac uh, was blind, and he thought he was dying. He actually lived another 40 years, but he must have eaten something, and uh, he thought he was dying. So he called Esau, and he said, I want you to go hunting and kill and cook for me my favorite food and then bring it to me, and then I will give you your inheritance. But Rebecca overheard this, and she told Jacob and he needed to, that he needed to pretend to be his brother so he could steal that blessing, that inheritance from his father. And so Jacob says, and he's an adult by now, but still, he says, but mommy, daddy's going to know. And uh, Rebecca says, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to wrap your arm in, in some animal skin. 
so that when your father reaches out to touch you, he'll feel that and he'll think you're Esau. And uh, so basically she's saying, listen, your brother is so hairy and your father is so blind. This is going to work. And it did work. Jacob lived up to his name. He supplanted his brother that day through deception and treachery. And here's Esau's response in Genesis 27. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And so uh, once Jacob heard this, he, of course, ran away and stayed with Uncle Laban. And, and then throughout the following chapters, we see how Esau held on to this grudge. And then that grudge actually grew, not just against Jacob, but against his whole family, even against Isaac, who had done nothing wrong. I'll give you one more example. Esau had overheard Isaac saying that no son of mine should ever marry a Canaanite woman, to which he immediately went to the land of Canaan and found himself another wife, just because it would upset his father. I mean, have you ever done that, purposely made a bad decision because your parents told you not to? I haven't either, but some people do it. Um, He was an angry man. He's carrying a grudge against his family and his brother that was eating him up. And then we really don't hear about Esau for the next several decades. He kind of, the narrative focuses on Jacob, but we know he's plotting to kill his brother. We know he's angry with his family, with his parents. And then we hear a a lot about Jacob. But then there's one last scene in Genesis 33 where Esau and Jacob come face to face, where we would expect this is Esau's chance to kill his brother. And uh, and it would have worked out well for him because Esau is approaching with 400 men. And Jacob has his entire family and, and his, his servants and his livestock, so he spreads them all out across the plain. So it would have looked like a, a medieval battle scene with this men marching toward in one way and, and this, all these, uh, these people spread out across the plain. And then it says in verse 4 that this happened. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they both wept. That's not a very good plan if you're trying to kill your brother. Sometime, and we don't know when, but sometime uh, between his initial plan and his hating of his parents and that growing, growing grudge, he learned something. What he learned was that he needs to forgive. And, I don't, and we don't know for sure when that happened, but it doesn't seem like it happened that day. And instead of being filled with anger and malice towards his brother, he's filled with love and forgiveness. In fact, Jacob tries to give Esau all that he had. He said, all this you see here is now yours. And Esau simply said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep it for yourself. And so I think Esau had learned something that our society is just beginning to figure out, that we need to forgive, not just as a directive from God, but because we benefit when we forgive. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Let me just reorder a bit what Paul has said in that second verse. What he's saying is this, forgiven people forgive others. Check this out, the, the Mayo Clinic, which is the number one uh, ranked hospital in North America, spends $660 million a year in researching and educating people on health. And the Mayo Clinic recently published this article, Forgiving, Letting Go of Grudges and Bitterness. And I want to remind you, this is not a, a Christian or a religious organization. Uh, these are healthcare professionals. And the article mentions a list of reasons why we need to learn to forgive. And I want to remind you that this is based on research, on studies they've done. And so here it is, a list of negative attributes that holding a grudge and harboring resentment will have on you. It says it will, you will bring anger and bitterness into every relationship and new experience. 
says you will become so wrapped up in the past wrongs that you can't enjoy the present. It says it will become depressed or anxious. You may feel that your life lacks meaning or purpose, and you will lose positive, valuable, and enriching connectedness with others. And instead, it's the exact opposite. You will gain negative and draining connections with others. That's what current medical research is telling us, something the Bible's been telling us for thousands of years. And it's not just the spiritual benefits. There's medical ones also. It says that if you can forgive others and let go of your grudge, let go of your bitterness, it will lead to healthier relationships, less anxiety, stress, and hostility, fewer symptoms of depression, improved heart health, improved mental health, lower blood pressure, a stronger immune system, and improved self-esteem. It's very much like, a, like an old uh, Cherokee elder teaching about holding a grudge. And it goes something like this. There was an old grandfather who said to his grandson who was angry because someone had done him an injustice. He said, let me tell you a story. He said, it's like there's two wolves inside of each of us. One is good and does no harm. It lives in harmony with all around him and does not take offense when no offense was intended. He will only fight when it is right to do so. But the other wolf, he's full of anger. The littlest thing will set him into a fit of temper. He fights everyone all the time for no reason. He cannot think because his anger and hate are so great. It's a helpless anger too because his anger hurts no one but himself. It's impossible to live in peace with these two wolves inside of me, for both will try to dominate. They're constantly at war with each other until one of them is defeated. And so the little boy looked into his grandfather's eyes and he said, well, which one will win, grandfather? To which the grandfather smiled and just said quietly, whichever one I choose to feed. So let me ask you, does holding a grudge work for you? Are you a better person because of the unforgiveness you may be harboring and holding on to that grudge that seems to hold on to you? Does your resentment bring you joy? Nelson Mandela once wrote, resentment is like drinking poison and hoping it will kill your enemies. Max Licato, a Christian author, said, resentment is when you let your hurt become hate. Resentment is when you allow what is eating you to eat you up. Resentment is when you poke, stoke, feed, and fan the fire, stirring the flames and reliving the pain. But I don't want to end with that. I don't want to end with a, just a warning about uh, bitterness and resentment. I want to end with a story about forgiveness. And uh, that story is about a man named Louis Zamperini. Now, this story might not be as bad as your story, uh, but it was pretty rough, and it's definitely compelling. And if the name seems familiar, it may be because uh, his story was made into a movie called Unbroken. You see, Louis had a difficult upbringing. Uh, by the age of 12, he was constantly getting to fights and drinking and was often bullied because of his Italian heritage. But Louis kind of stepped into the stoplight in, uh, stoplight, stop, um, spotlight in 1936 as a great American runner in the Olympics in Berlin, Germany. Louis was entered in the 5,000 meter race, which is about three miles. Now, though Louis was the fastest American in the race, he didn't win, but he finished the last 400 meters in under a minute, beating the old world record by 12 seconds. And so because of this, he was the favorite to win in the 1940 Olympics in Tokyo. But there was no 1940 Olympics because of the Second World War. So instead of running for his country in Japan, he fought for his country in Japan as a gunner in the U.S. Army Air Corps. And one day he's flying on a rescue mission in the Pacific when his plane is shot down and it crashes into the ocean. And it kills everyone on board with the exception of Louis and two of his friends. And these three men climbed into two life rafts and began an incredible journey as they drifted across the Pacific, covering about 2,000 miles over the course of 47 days. And it's an amazing story of survival as they fight against starvation and dehydration, against exposure, and even against sharks. But mostly, they fought against despair. 
And so one night as Louis's two friends were sleeping and he's floating in the darkness, he looks up into the heavens and says, God, if you're really there, let me make you a deal. If you get me out of this, I promise to dedicate my whole life to you. And on day 47, Louis's prayer was answered, but probably not the way he wanted it to be answered. Because although he was rescued, he was rescued by the Japanese Navy. I think it's fair to say that nobody ever enjoyed their time spent in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Uh, but this camp where Louis was sent was run by a brutal man named Watanabe. And Watanabe recognized Louis from the Olympics, and, and he poured out on Louis all of his hatred and all of his wrath. The beatings were continuous and severe, and Watanabe seemed to want to share his hatred for Louis with everybody else in that prisoner of war camp. And so he would purposefully punish other men instead of Louis at some time so that those other men would start to hate Louis as well. And in one of the most powerful moments of the movie, Watanabe forced every POW in the camp to line up and punch Louis in the face. And if Watanabe thought that you pulled your punch, he'd make you get back in line. In fact, Watanabe's treatment of Louis was so brutal that after the war, he was declared a war criminal not just by the US, but also by Japan. And Louis endured that POW camp for two years and that hatred he had for Watanabe grew every day, and he talked about how every day he would plot a way to kill him. But finally, after two years, they were liberated by the American army in the closing days of the war, and then when Louis got home to his hometown in California, he marries his high school sweetheart, and he starts his life over again. And that's where the movie ends, and that's really too bad, because in my opinion, that's where the story really gets good. You see, after, although the war was over, the war within him was not. He was filled with rage and anger, and hate. He lived in California, but in some ways he never left that POW camp. That anger, that grudge, that bitterness, not surprisingly, led him to abuse alcohol, and it, it nearly destroyed his marriage. In fact, one night in 1949, his wife had made up her mind to leave, but she tried one last thing. She reached her breaking point, and she said, Louis, will you come and hear a new pastor? There's a new pastor going around, and, uh, and he's just fantastic. Will you come with me to this? And wanting to please his wife, he said, fine, I'll go, but you have to agree on one thing. As soon as he starts to wrap up, as soon as he says, let's pray, we're leaving. And so she agreed, and actually went two nights in the end. But um, So Louis, Louis was listening and listening and listening, and then finally when he heard, uh, oh, sorry, I should mention, uh, that preacher's name was Billy Graham. And uh, Billy Graham finally made his altar call and said to them, you know, let's pray together. And Louis got up, and he started to bolt out the back of the, uh, of the tent. And he got about halfway up when suddenly he stopped. He stopped dead in his tracks, and he suddenly had a flashback to that night floating in the Pacific where he promised God that if God would save him, he would dedicate his life to him. And so he stood there for a moment, and then he turned around and he walked down the center aisle all the way to the front, all the way to the altar call, and then and there on the spot, he gave his life to Christ. And as Louis embraced God's grace and forgiveness for him, that same grace and forgiveness began to flow out of him. And that's because Louis had learned something. Louis had learned a valuable truth that forgiven people forgive others. And so in 1952, Louis returned to that prisoner of war camp, Sagumo Prison. And amazingly enough, many of the guards who had beaten Louis time after time were now being held there as war criminals. And Louis went and he spoke to everyone who had mistreated him during that time. And he told them, Jesus Christ has forgiven me of my sins, and I want you to know that I also forgive you for what you did to me. He simply told them, forgiven people, forgive others. And it was a very powerful moment for both Louis and these guards, but of course, one man was missing. Watanabe wasn't there. He was on the run, or perhaps he was dead. 
But although Louis could not tell him in person that he had forgiven him, Louis later writes that he forgave him that same day as well. But that amazingly, 45 years later, in 1997, a reporter for the TV show 60 Minutes found Watanabe living a quiet life in Japan. He was an insurance salesman. And they reached out to Louis and asked him if he would like to write a letter to Watanabe, because Watanabe had said he wouldn't meet with him. And I want to close tonight with that letter. The letter that um, Louis wrote to him begins like this. As a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was the tension and stresses of humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights, not only as a prisoner of war, but also as a human being, were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. My post-war's nightmares caused my life to crumble, but thanks to a confrontation with God, through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love has replaced the hate I had for you. Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. And as you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Sagumo Prison. I asked them about you and was told that you had probably committed Harry Carey, which I was sad to hear. Because at that moment, like the others, I also forgave you and now would hope that you too would become a Christian. Signed by Louis Zamperini in 1997. Because forgiveness is powerful and forgiveness is aggressive. Did Watanabe live a better life because he was forgiven by Zamperini? I don't think so. In fact, he probably didn't even know until 1997. And in the interview with the, uh, with the reporter from 60 Minutes, he said he wasn't sorry. He said, that's what you have to do. You have to be tough to run a prisoner of war camp. And he said, I picked Louis because I didn't like him. But let me ask you this question. Did Louis Zamperini live a better life because he forgave Watanabe all the way back in 1952? I would say so. And that's because he knew that forgiven people forgive others. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for an opportunity to share, but I, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for stories like Louis, who, uh, who just sometimes just put a, a current face to, a, to something that you've been telling us for so long, that when we forgive others, love and joy can, can flow through us and we can become the, the people that you want us to be, that you've never intended for us to be bitter and angry and rage-filled and just to live lives of quiet misery. That's not your plan for us. That's not why we were created. We were created to, to live a life of joy as we look towards you, as we praise you, and we give you the glory. And we just pray for that this week, Lord, that maybe if there's a grudge in, in, uh, in some of us, I would argue there's a, probably a grudge in all of us. I know I still have some I'm working through, Lord. I just, I just pray that you would just point them out to us and remind us that that's not what you want for us. It's not just a commandment that says you should forgive others. It's almost a plea that you want us to live this great life that you've laid out for us, but we're, we're, putting, we're putting this grudge, we're putting this hate in the way. I just pray, Lord, for everyone here that you would just work in them this week and uh, continue to just love us, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.